Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you rootin' tootin', highfalutin', low on the gluten techno fans of Isaac Newton. We're smashing through the sound barrier again today with another classic mint condition tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. It's been another hot week in the world of technology, and here to tell us all about it is the man himself, Matthew Dickerson. What's been distracting you this week, Matt? Well, it's more what's been distracting me today. I've had a really exciting day today. I went for a tour around a solar farm. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I do enjoy going to, well, I've been to coal fired power plants. I've been to places where they dig up coal. I've been to... Just trying to find which is the bigger eyesore, is that right? That's, that's Doing comparison. I just, I just like to make sure that I've got information from a whole range of areas yeah, right. rather than just say, oh, those ABC, I won't put a label on any particular one, but those things are terrible and these other things are great. Well, how can you say that if you don't have some first-hand knowledge and go and inspect some of those? So wind turbine farms, I go and have a look at those and solar farms. And so it's all very interesting. But I learnt a new term today, which I'm pretty excited about, and I love when I learn new words, and I'm not sure which is the right word because when I talk to them at the solar farm today, they're kind of talking about one word or the other. But the term they used initially was agrivoltaics, but they think they think they might go with the term agri-solar. And it kind of says what it is, but what I really liked about it is that some people say, oh no, solar farms are terrible because you take prime agricultural land and you put all these terrible solar panels on there and you just destroy that land and you don't produce any food from Mm, it. Now, in some cases, that is correct. Some cases you do have beautiful cropping land, you put solar panels on there, obviously it's pretty hard to get a header in amongst those solar panels to Mm. strip your wheat crop off when you grow your wheat crop there. So there is an argument along those lines. But a lot of solar panels are still put in areas where sheep grazing is the primary source of agricultural industry before the solar panels come along. Sorry, the sheep graze around the solar panels or through the solar panels, like well, underneath? And- go go back before the solar panels were there. A lot of the farming operations where you do end up with solar panels used to have sheep on them. So here mm. you go, you've got some nice rolling hills. There's not enough wind there to put wind turbines on there, but those rolling hills, well, that might be a good spot to put some solar panels. Sheep are grazing there today. They're mosing around, having a chew on some grass, waiting for the day they get to contribute their wool or maybe their entire body to (laughs) to mankind. And then someone comes along and says, we want to put some solar panels there. But then the sheep can still graze. Now, what they do is they do graze under and around. So to answer your question, you've you've got gaps down between the solar panels. You've got underneath the solar panels as well. And most of the solar panels rotate across as the sun goes across, so they're trying to maximise the production. So the sheep can kind of move around where they are, and they quite enjoy. When you go and look at them, they actually do hang around underneath the solar panels because it's a bit shady. That's right. Scratching posts and stuff like that. Well, apparently, what I found out today, I learned lots of things today, they don't tend to scratch themselves so much on the posts unless they've got lice. So if they're healthy wool, then they don't tend to rub on them too much. And if they start rubbing on the posts, then the farmer knows that maybe we've got to go and look at a problem there with right, rice okay. on the sheep's wool. So here we go. We've got all of this. And I've said to people before, there is a potential to keep having sheep graze on that land. And people say, that's rubbish. That's just something solar farm operators tell you. But I saw it today, real live sheep in amongst real live solar panels on a farm that used to be a farm but the carrying capacity 
at this stage, and this is very early, James, but at this stage, they talked about approximately 70% of your initial carrying capacity. So, for example, right. if you had 2,000 sheep on a parcel of land, you go and put solar panels across there, you might now run 1,400 sheep. So there's a slight difference there. You do lose a bit of that agricultural capacity, but at the same time, you're increasing quite dramatically the production you've got for the community. Yeah, so I was going to ask, um, so I guess the, the the income that you get for generating that solar power is because you're feeding that to the grid. Is there an income there? Absolutely right. So yeah. most of these farms are sold by the farmer to the solar farm operators. But if you kept the farm there and wanted to keep running it, then some agreements in place, they might say, we'll lease the land out for our solar farm, but you can keep running your sheep on it. So the farmer gets the income for the lease from the solar farm, but then you might also get the income reduced to 70%, but the income that you might have already received yeah. before from sheep farming. So it was quite fascinating watching it. So this term agrivoltaics or agrosolar, I love that term because it says we can mix mm. the new world economy, the new world energy, i.e. solar operations. We can mix that with an agricultural operation and it works quite well. Now, I've also been to solar farms back a few years ago when we had a drought and you think, well, how are they going to go through a drought? What you actually found or what I found seeing it firsthand was that you actually had a strip of grass along not so much grass when there wasn't a lot of rain around, where the solar panels sat at a fairly extreme angle overnight, dew gathered on the solar panels and then dropped down. So you actually had a strip of grass ah. in one spot along the solar panels well or underneath solar glass. panels. Yeah. So again, you had some carrying capacity on that land rather than just being a moonscape in terms of there were no solar panels on there. So it might actually be at the point where you can run sheep on that land where maybe you couldn't run sheep. Now, I don't have data on that. And that's where it's at at the moment. What they're doing at the moment is researching, are some grasses able to better survive when there's a bit of shading? Because at mm. the moment, grass is out there in the sun. You don't put a shade cloth over some grass to yeah. grow it. You, you have out there grass and it's being hit with all of our brilliant Australian sunshine. But are there grasses that might be better suited to being under solar panels? So that's early research as well. So you might find that with the restriction, keep in mind that the amount of rainfall that you get across the land doesn't change. You've got solar panels there, so the total amount of rain that hits the ground doesn't change. Mm. What is changing is how the sun is being exposed there. But if you can only take so much sun, if you're a, a bit of grass and you can only take so much sun, having more sun or less sun, it probably doesn't make much difference. It's all dependent upon how much rain you get typically. So, um, yeah, still some uh, stuff to be seen there, a bit of research to have it. Yeah, so that one there, that one I looked at today was a 200 megawatt farm. That powers approximately 60,000 homes. Oh, so 60,000, That's wow. right, yeah. And there's some developments nearby there. There's some wind turbines around there as well that power a lot of homes. There's one farm there that's got 33 turbines. They're older turbines. They only produce enough power for about 3,000 homes each. So there's 100,000 homes there. But this one we looked at today, there's a new one going next door to that. That'll be a 400 megawatt farm, which obviously will power about 120,000 homes. And then another one that's a, a few kilometres away from there that'll have 800 megawatts, over 800 megawatts, oh, wow. actually. Yeah. And so, look, does it interfere with the water? Um, what happens with the water in the soil at all? Does it, uh... Well, I think runoff is probably the main thing that we saw, certainly evidence of that today, where they've actually constructed some little creeks and put some blue metal in areas, and they've actually put some things in place to slow down that water flow because there's probably a bit more water flow happening, a bit more runoff happening when yeah, you do okay. get 
the rain, and so you don't want that running onto a neighbour's property and causing more erosion there. So it does change some things there, but again, you've got some pretty good people working on these projects to say, we know it's going to change the flow of water, we know it used to run here, it'll still run there, but it might run faster, so how do we put something in place to slow that water down? So mm. there's some minor changes like that. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the water table as well, because uh, without obviously you don't want to grow trees in amongst your solar cells, that cast shade, um, so without those deep-rooted trees that are keeping the water table low does you know does the water table rise and then bring with it salinity that's that's, a question yeah that is a possibility interestingly enough there were trees on this particular one we're at now again they've got to be careful where they have those trees you don't want to have shadows going across the solar panels because that Mm. reduces the efficiency of those but even in the new area we looked at there when we're looking at across that one of the people looking at it said well what happens to the trees what what's going to occur with all those trees, you're going to knock all those down. And they said, no, most of those trees will stay there. So probably as part of that salinity, they do want to keep some trees there, mm. keeping in mind that they pile drive galvanised steel into the ground mm. to put the solar panels on. Now, galvanised steel is great, but mm. if you get a lot of salinity coming up, presumably yeah. at some stage... Well, the galvanisation um, is supposed to protect it, but it will only protect it for a certain amount of time. And the, the higher salinity levels you have, then obviously the worst that would have an impact. Now, these solar panels we looked at today, the estimated lifetime before their efficiency drops below a level that's acceptable is about 35 years. Right. Now, a lot of people talk about, oh, no, after 20 years you've got to throw it all out. Well, you don't have to. It just, the efficiency reduces. The efficiency reduces at the rate of about 0.4% per year. Right. And so these particular ones, they're saying... We think there's a 35-year time frame. Now, it doesn't mean in 35 years they stop working. They just think the efficiency level will be down to a level that they'll either say, right, we've got what we needed out of this pass of land. Australia's now using nuclear. We don't need it anymore. Or, no, we still need it. Maybe we should replace all the panels with ones that are more efficient. So the 200-megawatt farm turns into a 300-megawatt farm or whatever mm. it might be with the same area being utilised there. So they want the gal poles to stay in the ground and be there for the long term. They don't want to have to replace it in, say, 10 or 15 years' time. So you presumably think that they want the trees in there as well to keep that that water table down at a certain level. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's very clever nevertheless. Although, if you're going to call it agrivoltaics, I want to see more wires attached to these sheeps. (laughs) Sheeps. The sheepies. (laughs) (laughs) Our first story today is directed squarely at the calorie conscious among us. We all deep down wish to eat well and to live long, healthy lives, I think. And some of us are genuinely good at it. Eating well, I mean. Uh, The rest of us have great intentions, but this next bit of tech, well, it's not for them. For us, let's face it. Uh, If you're being careful with what goes in your mouth, then you're probably keen to know the, the nutrient content in your food as you're preparing it. Well, there is a device currently being tested that can measure this on the spot. It's likely to appear in microwave ovens and will help calorie counters among us no end. Matt, how's it going to work? Well, I've never been a calorie counter. I I subscribe to the theory that people say is incorrect that some people say no amount of exercise can get you away from a bad diet, but I mm. like to exercise a lot so I can eat chocolate. So that's <laughs> that's my, my approach to life. So I've never worried about counting calories. Yeah. But and if it tastes like celery and feels like celery in your mouth, then it's probably only got a couple of calories. Or it's probably less. fairly low. That's right. So you probably eat as much of that as you like. You're probably spot on there. Here we are giving dietary advice. So, <laughs> so But some people are very focused on counting calories, but it yeah. sounds like hard work. And it does. I, I remember when I was at uni. That's we, why I don't do it. 
Well, <laughs> when we were at uni, we, we, there were four of us in a flat at one stage after we'd moved out of college, and one of the people there studying at uni was one of our flatmates was a dietitian, and there were times that she had to do as part of her course various calorie counting exercises, and we went, oh, this looks like a lot of hard oh. work. This puts off Weighing anyone. samples yeah, and measuring out by stuff. the spoonful. Yeah, and yeah. measuring what came out the other end as well. That oh. was all the fun part of it. I've gone too far there now. Hopefully no one's having breakfast. But when people cook things in a microwave oven, and I'm not saying that you've got to cook all your food in a microwave, but if you did, then you actually get some electromagnetic radiation leaking from the food as you're generating some heat, as you're mm. exciting some Well, the microwaves go and excite the, the molecules, and then they're going to re-emit some of that. Yeah, and, and microwaves typically are focused on exciting water molecules. Yeah, so right. you put a, a bit of ceramic in there, you put a plate in there and turn it on, it doesn't do anything because there's yeah. not much water in that. But you put a, a cup of water in there with some coffee in there, then it obviously heats that up. So there is obviously some radiation that comes out of that. So some researchers have found, at, this is at Ohio, oh, sorry, Ohio State University, Researchers have found that if they measure that electromagnetic radiation that's coming out of the food in your microwave, they can get a very accurate calorie count. Oh, wow. So I can see a microwave coming out in years to come, James. You put your food in, you put two minutes or whatever on the timer there, and you set it off, and it does the heating up, and then it tells you, by the way... You're about to have... X number of calories, yeah. Eight kilojoules worth of hamburger. <laughs> that's right. Do you really want to do this? <laughs> the limiting factor here, obviously, is that this is assuming that all your food goes through the microwave. And I'm sure there are some people that do that, but maybe it's not the perfect way to count calories. I mean, I eat breakfast cereal in the morning. I'm probably not going to put that in the microwave. <laughs> I may have had porridge, I suppose, and put porridge in the microwave, but you're probably not going to put all the food through the microwave. But it would be one way of just keeping an eye on those calories. And some of the meals that people buy, the home-cooked meals when they're, sorry, not home-cooked meals, the ones where you buy it as a home-cooked meal and chuck it in the microwave and heat it up, even them, some of those things, Getting to the point where you could see how many calories were in those, I think that'd be really quite interesting. Well, I wonder if you're working on like um, you're uh, transmitting uh, microwaves in a microwave oven, and and that those waves are being absorbed by the food, and then the energy is being re-emitted. That's what it's measuring. Yes. I wonder if you could do the same thing with radio waves. If you if it could be a case of you just put it in a box, not with microwaves, but with radio waves, something and get a different effect. Yeah, and actually just do a calorie count on that. So researchers in the past have tried to do calorie counts on photographs. So there have been attempts to say, take a photo of the food you're about to eat rather than try and calculate how many calories and we'll do a calorific calculation based on the photo and the researchers have found when they've done that, it's pretty inaccurate. <laughs> so in this scenario, it's better. Yeah, this is my surprise face. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> it's better, obviously, doing it from the microwave perspective. So maybe if this actually works, maybe you're spot on that you do have a little device that you drop your food into, you, you click a button, it put some sort of microwave or as a radio yeah, energy right. into yeah. it and then it says, yep, this is going to be so many calories so you can keep an eye on those calories throughout the day. So that's there not a bad go. idea either because I reckon it would be hard work counting those calories and being really religious about it and doing it every single time. You're probably going to fall off the, the wagon at some stage during that process. Or you could just admit that the Strawberry donut's going to have lots of calories. And <laughs> That's right. Just, Does it have just, a reading that just says too many? Is it going to stop you from eating it? <laughs> yeah, this has got a lot in it. Forget about it. <laughs> now, here's an interesting little tech glitch. The iPhone 14 keeps calling 911 on roller coasters in the US. Matt, there's some explaining to be done here, but I suppose the cops are immediately dispatched when the operator hears the screaming, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you can imagine it all works, doesn't it? You've got these high G forces on the roller coaster. 
the Apple phone, iPhone 14, says, oh no, you've been in a car accident because you've experienced high G-forces. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Can oh, I help you, ma'am? Can I know? <laughs> and of course you're going to rush there and then everyone rushes there and they're looking around a roller coaster. Mm, I've actually mm. seen this a little bit so on... So how does it work? But anyway, sorry, yeah, yeah. Well, on a previous model, the watch, uh, and I can't remember which one it was on the first one, but certainly in a previous one, I've been in a mountain bike race and I've been going over jumps and I've been landing on two wheels, not falling off, and next thing I felt a vibration on my wrist. In the middle of a race, you don't want to worry about that too much. But, oh, what's going on on my wrist? And I don't care about someone sending me an email at the moment, but it's kept vibrating. And then I've glanced at it, and next thing you know, it's saying it's going to call emergency services because I've obviously oh, fallen off my bike right, because okay. it's experienced some high G-forces. There's a little a, accelerometer a, in it. Correct, that's right. So that's been a feature of, say, an Apple Watch for several seasons now of Apple Watches. The iPhone 14 has got the extra feature of a crash detection feature. So it will detect if you've been in a car accident. Now, there's a good possibility if you've been in a car accident, you might be knocked out. Mm. So you're probably not sitting there going, oh, I'll just ring, mm. in our case, triple zero on America, 911, and get them to come out and help me. There's an injury here or whatever it might be. So you're knocked out, but your phone says, oh, I know, I just went through a, a few G-forces there, and I've taking into account the whole environment, the noise of the car crash, etc. I'm going to use all that information. I'm going to ring 911 and say you've been in a car crash with a sort of a pre-recorded message as such. But what they've been finding so far is exactly as we talked about, on roller coasters, those situations have been similar enough to a car accident that the iPhone 14 has been ringing and people have been dispatched. So you've actually had emergency really? services coming wow. out. And you can imagine so that <laughs> if there was an emergency call from an amusement park, there would be a possibility that someone's been injured out there. So yeah. why wouldn't you logically send some people out there? Okay, quick, there's been an injury. Oh, the adventure park. Well, of course there's been an injury out there. Let's get the ambulance out there and let's get everyone Good to help. Me. And they turn up there and there's someone who's still on the roller coaster screaming, saying what a wonderful time they're having. <laughs> so I assume... Well, and it's a fairly intense sort of experience as well. So you're not going to be even worried about any vibration on your wrist. No, you wouldn't even notice it more than likely. Mm. And again, imagine when you come down and they say, someone on here has had an accident somewhere. And then you look at your phone going, uh -huh. oh, whoops. Oh, <laughs> just must have been that guy over there. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I saw him running that way, officer. But it's it's one of those things that you try out these new features. Any company tries out these new features and they find some. No, they're not perfect. So I guarantee there'll be a software update very shortly that'll fix this problem. I don't know how they'll fix it because obviously oh, it's I'm, looking I'm out for G-forces. Remembering the boy who cried wolf here. That's right. And um, <laughs> some terrible accident occurring at some adventure park. And, and you could have a car accident that didn't mean that you or your phone experienced high G-forces, but you could still be fairly injured. It just yeah. depends on how things happened in that car accident. So you, you could have that. So trying to get it right with all of that is a bit tricky. But anyway, it's been an interesting thing so far. It's been happening. It's been real. But there'll be a software update, I'm sure, that will try and address this. We talked last week about tech being able to monitor your state of mind. Well, this next story is right along those lines. A smartwatch that sends emojis to parents can allow them to get a handle on their child's well-being throughout the day with regular real-time updates. Matt, I can see major benefits here, but also, as a teacher, some pretty big drawbacks to this. First, how does it work? It does rely on the child in the situation being aware enough of how they feel that they're clicking on a little smartwatch on an emoji to just give an indication to their parents or whoever they might set up to receive this information about how they're feeling. So, mm. yeah, we talked about last week in terms of specifically suicide, and that was a, an adult version, if you like. This is a kid's version, just so you can keep in touch with your kid's 
feelings. And you'd like to think as a parent that you can talk to your children and find out how they're feeling. But kids sometimes don't want to tell you everything and don't want to get in that detailed conversation. Or they might be embarrassed for a whole range of reasons. They might not tell you how they're feeling. But if you introduce technology, and I think this is the clever part of this, if you introduce technology to the equation, kids are more likely to actually participate, more likely to say, oh, this is cool, I get to use technology for doing whatever it might be. So they wear the smartwatch, it can come up at predetermined intervals, and they can actually click on just a smiley face or a sad face or a range of emojis on the face just to say how they're feeling. That then goes through to, as you say, for example, your parents, and your parents can keep an eye on that, and they can track that and monitor that, and then suddenly they see a dip in that, a one-off dip they might be too worried about, but a couple in a row where the sad face is coming through or angry face is coming through, it might be time to reach out and just see how your child's doing. There are ways, I think, and and I think there is so much more development to occur, where technology can help with our mental health. And this is a really Mm. big health issue, I think, going forward over the next couple of decades. Mental health is something that we're really just scratching the surface on. So if you can get something like this, where people are comfortable using it and maybe more comfortable than having a detailed conversation with mum or dad, Mm. oh no, I just got, my girlfriend just broke up with me at school today, I'm devastated by that, and that might lead to other outcomes that aren't great, you might want to have that conversation with mum or dad. But just Mm. clicking an emoji on your watch, you might be okay with that. I can see that, though, uh, during a school day, that could present some big problems because we know that, uh, particularly for adolescents, uh, adolescence is an mo- uh, emotional roller coaster for mm. most people. Yeah. And through a school day, um, you know, certain messages might um, might encourage, uh, well, some negative behaviours that um, that could make for some some big trouble, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there might be a couple of headaches that are created by this. And you're right, there could well be. And again, I think this will be one of those things that you almost try it out and see how it goes. Mm. I mean, it monitors other things as well. So it does monitor their heart rate. It does monitor their step count. So you kind of get a few other indicators as well. If your child sends through some sad emojis and their heart rate looks normal, then they might be just a bit frustrated for the moment. But if they Mm. send through a few sad emojis and you see that their heart rate is higher than it normally would be, Mm. you kind of start thinking, well, maybe they are getting a bit anxious. Maybe the stress levels are going up. Their heart rate's responding to that. And even the step count, looking at the fact that your child might normally do 10,000 steps a day, 15,000 steps a day, and then you see a few sad emojis come through for a couple of days and they're only doing three or 4,000 steps, you think maybe they're not getting out, they're not active enough. That's part of mental well, mental health, keeping your physical side healthy as well. So I think there's a few indicators. I think the research has done a pretty good job for a first iteration of this. It'll be really when it gets out there in the world to see how it goes. Unfortunately, there'll be some times it misses all the indicators and there'll be some parents very unhappy that you get a bad outcome, mm. even despite the fact that one of their children had this particular watch on. So that's something to be careful of as well. There's nothing that will replace, I think, that human interaction. drone deliveries before, but those stories were pretty much all about what's happening overseas. Well, that's all set to change, folks, with pathology samples now being zoomed by airborne drone across town in Brisbane. Matt, the seal's been broken. We are literally off and racing, and it's about time. You've got an incredible number of pathology samples that are transferred around Brisbane, so there must be very few testing centres in Brisbane. But, for example, from Moreton Bay Island, they have testing that happens there where people take a blood sample, but they can't do the testing there. They transmit that across to Brisbane, for example. And in some of those cases, it can take 
hours to get some of those samples yeah. across. But even in Brisbane, Brisbane's a fairly large city in Australian terms, probably not in overseas terms, but a fairly large city. And you do get lots of traffic congestion. So even just transferring it from places where people go to have blood samples taken to the testing centre, there are times it can take, say, 50 minutes to an hour to transfer that around. Now, that becomes a bit of a pain from a traffic perspective. Maybe it becomes a bit of a health issue that you need some very quick results to come through. But just from an efficiency, using people more effectively, using our technology more effectively from an efficiency perspective, drones are about to be used from the beginning of next year to transfer some of these samples around. And when you think about it, blood samples are a really obvious thing to use for drones. They're not very mm. large. Mm. You don't need something very heavy to transfer it. You want it to be transferred quite quickly. It is fairly important. The cost of the testing is going to be dramatically more than the cost of that transportation with a drone. But also, putting a person in a car with multiple samples probably is a more expensive scenario yeah. than putting it on a drone and sending it off. So it does make perfect sense to transfer this via drone. So they think they'll be able to get some of these down to typically a 15-minute flight. And again, in some of the ones we talk about Moreton Bay Island or Stradbroke Island, for example, some of those, they actually have to use ferries to get the samples across now. So you can imagine, yeah, do the testing, get it down to the, to the, ferry, to the ferry, put it on the ferry, take it across there, get it on another vehicle. So it's a fairly complicated process. And also I wonder, you know, do they, do they wait till they've got a reasonable batch before they you know, go and do the delivery? Yeah, or? you don't want to go and put it in that car for one, do you? Yeah. You want to have at least a few there, whereas a drone, maybe not one, maybe they just wait until they've got five or ten, a smaller number, and then send the drone off. Fifteen minutes later, they've got it there, send yeah. it back and get the next one. So it does make perfect sense, and I can see a huge number of samples being transmitted this way. In fact, why not all of the samples being transmitted this way? It makes mm. a lot of sense. And then we'll start to look at other things besides coffee that might be transmitted via drones. <laughs> Exciting times afoot there. Now, anyone with a flight to catch knows the anxiety of running late. You've just got to get there. And that, that flight, is it's not going to wait for you. If only you could leapfrog the traffic right up to the check-in. Better still... If the airline could have just picked you up from the front door, you'd have nothing to worry about. Well, Delta Airlines knows the pain and wants to do just that with air taxis. Matt, how and or when is this going to happen? Not soon enough, unfortunately. The sooner, sooner the better as far as I'm concerned. It does give an example here of a trip from Manhattan to JFK Airport. It takes typically 50 minutes to an hour. And I know when I've, I've actually been to JFK Airport and, and I've been to places like Heathrow, I know when I'm in places like those in cities that I don't know that well, I've never been so early for a flight as when I'm flying in some of those airports <laughs> because I think, oh, well, in this traffic here and it's a really busy city, gee, I better allow an hour and a half to get there. It might only take an hour, but it still seems like a long mm. period of time. Delta Airlines, and this is really interesting when you get some of these major airline carriers who think they need to keep reinventing themselves, Delta Airlines is talking about investing up to $200 million in Joby Aviation. So they don't want to own this process. They don't want to be the ones running it all, but they're happy to invest in some other companies that they will partner up with. Joby Aviation is really talking about that home-to-airport model, mm. and they're doing it in the Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Aircraft, or the eVTOL. Surely we can come up with a better acronym than that. <laughs> eVTOL doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? If you change around some of those words, maybe we can get something better than that. But that's where they're headed. And again, from a Delta perspective, I can see them doing one of two things, either offering this as a service to 
you, if you're flying with Delta, oh, sir, you're flying with Delta, we'll send out our home-to-airport taxi to pick you up and bring you there and waste only 10 minutes of your time rather than an hour in traffic. Mm. And that would be enough for a lot of people to say, well, I'm flying Delta because they've got that. Or they might just have this as another part of their service. They've got airlines that fly from New York to Los Angeles and they've got air taxis that take you from wherever you are out in the suburbs through to JFK Airport, for example. So I'm not sure what their model will be, but they obviously think there is a market in that. As I say, they've already put $60 million in directly, and they've promised up to 200 mil if Joby Aviation keeps ticking off some wow. of the timelines and some of the processes that they've promised they'll get there. So it does sound fantastic. They do also say that in the trip to the airport, which saves you a lot of time, you also get a spectacular view across the city skyline while you're doing it. Because you can imagine <laughs> these are probably only flying not a long way above some they of... charge you extra. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's right if you've got a window seat there, which all seats would probably be window seats. But when you fly above that skyline, you, you wouldn't be, I'm guessing now, but maybe 300 metres, 400 metres. You've yeah. only got to be above yeah, the skyline. Right. You don't need to be way up in any sort of high level. So you're flying at those sort of levels. You do get a pretty good view across the city, much better than sitting in an aircraft going in. So Jeez, I, think I wonder if they could fly in through all the um, <laughs> through all the skyscrapers. That'd be cool. It would be cool. I'm sure they feel could. like Batman. I'm, I'm not sure that they'd like that. I'm not sure the, <laughs> the people in the skyscrapers would like that. I'm not sure that the safety aspect the FAA would like that but it does sound cool doesn't it yeah. you've been watching too many too many Batman movies yeah. haven't you <laughs> uh, but but I think we're going to see more and more of this in Dubai we know that this is already happening we see a lot of development happening around this around the world and this is where if you're an organisation and you think that the business model you've got now is good and we're making money we'll just keep doing that forever it's not going to work. Mm. This is where some of these airlines are saying we need to make sure we're in front of it mm. because our job is taking people by air from A to B. Who cares if A to B are now much closer together than they used to be before? Mm. We think we know how to do this, so let's keep doing it. We live in an age of disasters today, folks, like it or not. Whether you want to talk about climate change or not, certainly increasing population densities are also increasing the impact of major natural events like Hurricane Ian recently in the US and, of course, the flooding that's currently occurring at more local level here in Oz. Determining the extent of damage is also problematic. With assessors restricted until access to areas is deemed safe and then the area may be so broad that it may take too long to get some, uh, to some of the properties. Matt, when so many people have their livelihoods severely impacted, there has to be a 21st century fix to this problem, surely. There does, and one of the big problems with this at the moment is, and I'm going to put the warning out there now, James, this is not a story about a scam, but it's actually been less effective than it could be because people have mistaken this process for a scam. So I'll get to that oh, in a okay. minute. <laughs> so what happened with Hurricane Ian was it destroyed lots of homes. Getting some help to those people very quickly is difficult. They declare a natural disaster or an emergency area. So you're in that area, your home's been destroyed, you might need to just get some emergency clothing, you might need to get some food very quickly, mm. you might need to try and stay at a motel just initially to, to get yourself sorted out so you can find There's somewhere more permanent. Any number of permutations are things that it's, people are going to need. That's right. And so you might need some emergency money. So in the past, there might have been a website you went to to go and apply for some money and you go through a process and you get that, but where do you get the computer from? Because that got destroyed in Hurricane Ian. Mm. And so you've got to find somewhere to get a computer and you've got to go there and there's a fair few complications to go through and you need it now. You don't need it in a week's time after all that's been processed. So they tried some experiment with Hurricane Ian where it was a Google AI that scanned some satellite imagery 
to work out the neighbourhoods that were worst hit and then it overlaid some other data on that and looked at where the socioeconomic positions of the people in those neighbourhoods was worst and then sent that information to people's phones and said, James, you look like you've been hit by Hurricane Ian. We might, or you might need some money quickly. Click on this link to get $700. And that's the last part is where it fell over. People got the information. Uh. It got to the correct people. It got to the correct people very quickly. We're talking about within hours of Hurricane Ian hitting. But if I got a message yeah. that said you've been hit oh, by a hurricane, yeah, click on this that. link for 700 bucks, I'd be going, yeah, I don't think so. I, you know, what a scam. Gee, these scammers are clever, aren't they? Yeah. They've targeted me, but obviously they've targeted everyone, so I'm not going to fall for that scam. And that's where they found that people weren't taking it up at the same level they thought they would have because, again, you would think it was a scam. Who's going to offer you $700 just because they know that your house got hit by a hurricane? Like, that's just crazy stuff. It'll have to get to the point where people will be more accepting of this and understand that this is what happened. But the AI involved in this was very clever. And obviously, so much of this relies on great data in the background. Take the satellite imagery, there's the first bit of data. You can see the damage that's been done. It can compare the imagery to what it looked like yesterday before the hurricane came. So you can see the areas. It's not just someone had a, a messy backyard and then they get some emergency funding. They knew that yesterday it looked good and today it didn't. And then getting that extra data of your financial position and then the extra data of your mobile phone number to mm. send you the message wow. to say that you've got access to that money. So there's a fair bit of scary data that people have got in the background about you. And this was all in conjunction with government departments so that it wasn't as if Google just randomly had the information. But there's a fair bit of information there that some people may be uncomfortable with. Yeah, particularly in the states where everyone's paranoid. Mm, exactly right. But <laughs> I think the concept of getting money to people hit by a disaster, that concept is fantastic. There's a few little bugs to iron out in the process of that and then get people comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And then I pretty much guarantee if there are some scammers out there that see an opportunity, they'll be all over that as well. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> if only people were good. And while we're on the subject of AI, folks, did you know that it's possible for artificial intelligence to gauge whether a, a building is energy efficient just by looking at it? Matt, tell me we're not talking about open gazebos with gas heaters here. <laughs> Even I can spot that. <laughs> no, no, it's actually fascinating where they've combined again some satellite imagery. This is Google taking all this data. It's a bit scary how much data they have. But taking imagery from satellites and then imagery they've got from Google Street View. And then what they did was they fed all this information into their machine learning algorithm that said, here are the energy efficiencies of known buildings that you've got imagery of already. Now go and compare the known environment of these sample thousand images, for example, with all of these other ones and tell us how energy efficient each of these other buildings are. And because they've already got a lot of that information to start with, then they can get their predictions fairly yeah, wow. right. And then what do you do with that? Well, this is fine. They gave them a rating. They range from A, to which is the best rating, to G, which is the worst rating. And then they can send that information out to people. And so people can then start to take some action to try and reduce or, or increase the energy efficiency, reduce the loss they might have in energy. And when you consider that usually a household spends anywhere from, say, 40% to maybe even up to 60% on heating or cooling their home mm. if you can solve the problem of energy efficiency. And we've talked about this before, James. We are focused in the world on producing power in better ways, wind power, solar power, renewable methods of producing power. 
I don't know that we're doing quite as much work on reducing our usage of power. And this is a perfect example of that. If you see these homes are less energy efficient, you get information to say your home's less energy efficient. Oh, gee, I'm losing lots of power and money by having a less energy efficient home. What can I do? Should I double glaze my window? Should I put more insulation in my ceiling? Oh, I don't have insulation in my ceiling. Should I put some in the ceiling or in the walls or those gaps under doors that seem to get the beautiful warm mm. air from inside, outside in the winter? Should I just plug those gaps underneath the doors, for example? So there are some simple things that you can do. There are complicated things you can do as well. But just knowing that you've got a house that's not that energy efficient for a start and without having to spend a lot of money on that, then that's a good starting point. Excellent. Excellent step uh, towards a positive future there. Okay, folks, it's time to crack the party poppers and not a moment too soon either. We're at a pivot point here in Australia, the moment of truth where tradies around the country are going to make some big calls about EVs. Yes, EV utes are on their way to Australian shores at last, and I reckon it'll take some bold people to jump into this at first, but once word gets around, you can buy shares in maple syrup because these are going to sell like hotcakes. <laughs> Matt, sounds like the winds of change are blowing a gale. Oh, they are indeed. Now, Boston Consulting Group, and I've got a lot of time for Boston Consulting Group, I often quote some of their data in, in talks that I do, they've actually done a report and get ready for it, they say by 2030, so only eight years away, electric utes and vans will make up half of the light commercial vehicle sales in Australia. Do you know what? I've just heard half our, our listeners just going, yeah, sure. <laughs> That's As right. if. <laughs> so, and I just and can't wait. Again, I've got a lot of time for the work that the, the Boston Consulting Group do. I actually think half is probably very conservative because I think – once people start to see these utes, they will go, wow, you can do that? That's mm. fantastic. Yeah, that's right. It's, that when they see them and they know that someone's using them and using them effectively, yeah, um, it's, yeah. Now, we've been told that, that electric utes will never work. We've been told that they don't exist. Well, that's a lie because they do exist overseas. The, yeah. the Ford F-150, we've talked about that. The yeah. Lightning, it's going gangbusters. They, they cannot produce enough for all the sales that are out there. What we've got in Australia, though, is a few are coming. Now, there's a Chinese one called the LDV ET60. Now, it's probably going to cost about 20 grand more than the petrol equivalent of that car. But we've talked before about ignore the ticket price. When you work out how much your car costs you, do a four-year calculation of mm. the total cost of ownership, including petrol costs, including maintenance costs, and mm. including resale value. And we've already seen various reports that I've been reading, the figure can be twenty, thirty thousand dollars more you pay for an electric version, and that'll actually be cheaper for you in a four-year time frame. And even just today, I was driving out on the highway today, and I saw went past a petrol station. It had two dollars thirty per yeah. litre for diesel. That's pretty scary. That's today. Imagine in four years' time what a litre of diesel exactly. will cost you. See, see that that's shocking right now. But that's what right. happens when it climbs to three dollars a litre? Yeah, that's right. You know, it just. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so the Boston Consulting Group have said that once these utes become available, more and more people will start to use them. And they actually had a couple of little case studies out of the US of people that have already got electric utes. And it was interesting. They interviewed some people that weren't big EV fans. They were saying, oh, look, I'd heard about them a bit and we've got a few cars in our fleet. So I thought I'd try adding one to our fleet and see how that went. And now all of them want them. And it's mm. simple things. 
one of the things that they love is the fact that you've got a frunk. So when you're storing <laughs> some of your tools, yeah. you think about a tradie, they sometimes have big lock-up boxes in the back of their ute because stuff gets stolen sometimes. But when you put it in the frunk, people don't even know you've got it. So yeah. it's a good place to store some of the store some of those little electric drills, cordless drills, whatever it might be, but a great place to store those. So that's been one thing that some of these traders have already talked about. They've got access to all their ute space because they're not taking it up with these lockable containers because they can pour a lot of that stuff Mm. in the front. But then the second thing they love is the fact that they've got PowerPoints on the ute. So they can turn up to a job site and if they do still need to run some of their tools not cordless, they still need to plug them in, well, they don't have to muck around and try and get some builder's power at a building site or have a generator there. They just plug into their ute and mm. there you go. You've got electricity there or even just plug in your chargers for your cordless devices so you've got those batteries charged up and ready to go. So that's been a big thing as well. The tradies have talked about the fact that it's saving the money. Petrol costs obviously are going up, so they love that idea. And the range anxiety, see, utes actually are probably perfect for a tradie, electric utes, because most of these utes aren't used for big long trips. They don't get in the ute every day and drive a thousand kilometre round trip. They do do more kilometres than the average person on a daily basis, but it's usually that sort of daily basis. So it might be 50, 80, 100 kilometres, mm. rather than the average person might do 20 or 30 kilometres per day. So they're doing longer, but they're not doing thousands of kilometres a day. So they're still well within that range. And they sometimes tow things, but again, it's normally towing it to a building site and then dropping it off there and then using the ute from there. So I, I think, as I say, the Boston Consulting Group are probably being conservative. I do think we'll see a lot more once they're available. That's when they'll really start to take off. And I was a bit excited by a report I read just the other day that said 2%, as we know, is the sort of figure that people have been buying EVs in Australia. So last year was a fraction under 2% of new car sales. Already in the first six months of this year, we're up to 3.5%, which doesn't sound like much, I know, but, but it's better than 2% mm. and it's happening quite quickly. And um, something that I've found since purchasing an EV for myself is that a lot of people don't realise that there's not much maintenance to be done on them at all. Yeah, that's right. It's good, isn't it? So the saving that you, you know, think about, you know, the two services a year, you know, every six months you're supposed to get your car service. So um, the saving there. Yeah, that's right. So you've got three real saving areas, I think. One, you've got the ongoing maintenance. So as you Mm. say, what do you do? I know one of the electric vehicles I owned before had 43 moving parts. That was everything. That was door handles. That was everything. 43 moving parts. So there's not much to maintain on them. And you're not using your brakes so much because you've got the regenerative braking. That's right. So I I actually had an inspection of one of my cars at 80,000 kilometres. And I actually said specifically, tell me how much pad wear I've got on my disc brakes. And they looked at it and they said, we've measured how much pad there is there now compared to new and we can't see a difference in terms of <laughs> measurement. So, yeah, you've, you've got that. So the maintenance is very low. The fuel costs are very low. But I think the thing that is really going to be the killer for people that are buying their ICE vehicles today is in four years' time, you go and try and sell mm. a second-hand ICE. And you're talking about 2026. Mm. 2030, a lot of countries around the world are going to be banning brand-new petrol sales or diesel and petrol sales. So by 2026, the world has really started to move on. And then you stick your little ad up for your good old-fashioned petrol car that you only bought four years ago, and it's only got 60 or 80,000 kilometres on it. People are going, what? you got to put petrol in a petrol. It's $10 a litre now, do you know? Why do we want that? So I think that's the other thing that people aren't really calculating correctly is that resale value. Exciting stuff nevertheless. There are a few pitfalls to riding share bikes that I had no idea about. 
they're not a real big thing out here in regional New South Wales after all. But these pitfalls are about to come to an end anyway with the help of air tags. Firstly, what are the problems with share bikes and how does an air tag solve them? <laughs> well, you've got a few things. This particular product that I'm going to talk about will solve problems for all sorts of bikes, whether it be share bikes, whether it be your own personal bike, whatever it might be. But sometimes people steal bikes, whatever the bike might be, and sometimes people don't keep a really good eye out for bikes that might be being ridden around. So having a bell, well, it's compulsory to have a bell on a bike, having a bell that's nice and loud and that makes a bit of noise, and I like electronics, I like technology, so I normally have electronic ones, but it means I've got to charge them up. But the good old-fashioned bell that you click a little dinger on the side and it makes a nice loud noise is quite effective. But air tags, and we've talked about them before, can be used in a whole range of ways to reduce theft and to let you find something that you might have. So, for example, you park a bike somewhere with lots of bikes and you come back like when you parked a car going, where did I put that car mm. again? Finding your bike, and, and I've actually ridden a bike around the Netherlands, and sometimes you'll put it outside a shopping centre and you come back out and you go, holy truth, there's a thousand bikes here. Where did I put <laughs> that bike again? <laughs> so having that problem and also the theft problem, there's a new product that's just come out which I think is absolutely brilliant. It's a little bell. It's a, a bell that's designed to help you just ring the bell, let people know you're there, all those things you'd expect a bell to do. But when you actually unscrew the bell, it just happens to be the perfect size to put an air tag inside the bell. There you go. Take it apart, put the air tag inside, screw it back together again. If someone does happen to steal your bike, you go on your phone and you go, I'm not thinking that they're going to be taking apart that bell looking for the air tag. They just think they've gotten away with a bike and I can just look exactly where they are. Come out trying to find your bike in amongst all these bikes, share bikes, whatever it might be, same problem. Oh, I'll go and find it on my app or if you need to, press the button and it'll ring it. And I actually think, and I haven't got this confirmed from the manufacturer, but the fact that the bell sits there as a little cone over the air tag Air tags aren't that loud. They've got a very small speaker in them. But I actually think having that little metal cone over the top would actually make the air tag sound that little bit louder. Oh, so when you come out in yeah. amongst all these bikes, you get on your phone and say, make my air tag make a noise, it will probably be a little bit louder than you'd normally expect it to be because it's being slightly amplified by that bell, but yeah, I've got right. no proof to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but what a cool invention. Just very a real cool. simple, a, a very simple thing, which many cool inventions are very simple. Yeah. A nice little simple bell that just happens to have the spot inside it to put an air tag. And just like that, we're done for another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Thanks for another cracker of a show, man. Uh, my pleasure. I do get excited talking about technology. I, I do talk too fast still, James. I've got to slow down. I'm a faster I talk because I've got so much to say so about much technology. To say. That's right. Let it out. And I'm off to stand at the dockside and greet those boats carrying the shiny new utes. I'll do a bit of flag waving and party popping and see if they're impressed enough to give me a free one. Thanks for tuning in again, folks. I'm James Eddy, and it's been a pleasure to bring you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. If you've got a minute, punch a like button or two, or give us five stars, or crank out a little message to us, or even spread the good word about how you heard it first on Tech Talk. Catch you again in